How's your weekend been? Has it been good? Real good. I've been good, too. Um, listen, I have not been able to share now for a couple of weeks. We had Chris Chima, and we, we skipped last week just because it was, you know, Thanksgiving and all that kind of thing. So, and I think there was a week before that I didn't. Or was that when I did? I can't remember when I did. Okay, so I've had two weeks of just, like, studying and figuring stuff out and reading and reading and studying and stuff. So I have so much inside of me that I just want to... What it feels like, I was trying to figure out what it feels like. What it feels like is uh, when you go grocery shopping and you're hungry, and what do you put in the basket? Everything. Everything looks so good, right? And you throw it all in the basket, and you, you run through the checkout line, and you pay way too much for it, and you get home, and then you're standing there with all this amazing food in front of you, and it's like, what am I going to eat first? I think I'm going to eat it all. So then you're just like, so I'm hoping tonight that I don't like throw way too much food at you, and that you're like, Whoa. you know how little babies are when you're putting too much food in their mouth? They're like, you know, okay. So hopefully I can't, I won't do that. Hopefully we will just have a good time tonight. Amen? Well, part of uh, one thing that I've been talking about, uh, kind of introing each of our nights here that I've been sharing with you, is the, the fact of, um, of doubt. That it comes to a time in our life where we have to decide what we believe. Amen? And uh, so kind of coinciding with this series on Genesis and kind of God and the first statement in Genesis 1 of in the beginning God, which leaves absolutely no room for anything else besides God, right? In the beginning God. So you have to decide if you're going to believe it or not. And yet at the same time, these things that are so important in life as, as far as where am I going? What I, why am I here? And where am I going to... How did I get here? Those big questions. There's never solid certainty. I'll just tell you that right now. There's always an element of uncertainty because it cannot be proven. It's not... It's, it's philosophical, right? And so there is going to be a certain amount of, of uncertainty within all of this. And the other thing that I want to share with you is that Every single religion has uncertainty. Every single one. They all have to overcome doubt. They all have to overcome that, that gap in front of... In fact, I was reading in a book and he was saying uh, that you know, he, was, he was an atheist. and He was standing there and he had so much coming at him. He was a scientist. He had so much that he was learning and, and seeing in the, na- in the world and, and in nature and all that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, he, th- you know, he was starting to be pressed towards God. And he came to a point where he was pressed and pressed and pressed. And he came up to this cavern, this precipice in front of him. That if he were going to go ahead and choose God, he was going to have to take a leap of faith to go ahead and say yes to God. That yes, there is a God. I'm going to do this thing. And he found himself there and he was like, I don't know if I could do that. I'm a scientist. I like hard, hard, cold facts. I like this thing. So he turned around and behind him, all of a sudden he found another gap. And that gap... On the other side of that was the statement, there is no God. So he found that himself in the middle of a predicament, if he was going to become a Christian, he was going to believe in God, he was going to have to take a leap of... But if he was going to have to, you know, if he was going to choose atheism, if he was going to go ahead and say there is no God, he found himself having to take a leap of faith. Because there was 
an area there of, well, what if there is a God? Right? So doubt is something that you're always going to be facing when it comes to philosophy, when it comes to religion, when it comes to God, when it comes to the spiritual things. So what are we going to do about this doubt? Well, the most important thing to understand about doubt, and especially when it comes to God, is that usually it means that you don't have enough knowledge. For you see, God is absolutely immense. He is absolutely huge. He is is greater than the universe. He is this huge, infinite being. And we are like little itty-bitty, teeny, tiny grasshoppers standing here looking at him going, I don't understand you. And he looks at you and he goes, I know you don't understand me. It's impossible for you to understand me. Your brain is this big and I am this big. So you're never going to quite totally understand God because he's so immense. He is so infinite and we are so finite. We are little bitty grasshoppers looking up at him. But his great infinite love for us is so amazing that he transcends our little grasshopper brain and he drops himself and his presence right down in the midst of us. How many of you have ever been in a moment where he has transcended and all of a sudden, man, he is so real? That is the miracle power working of our God. And you know, I, I, we talked a couple of weeks ago actually about doubting Thomas. Remember the story of doubting Thomas? Spent three years walking with Jesus. Three years watching the blind have their eyes open and the, the deaf hear and the dead raised. And you would think that you would believe beyond belief when you were able to see all that, wouldn't you think? Circumstances shook his trust and his belief. Jesus died on a cross. What? That wasn't supposed to happen. Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, yeah? I don't believe it. I got to see it and touch it and feel it. Jesus shows up, shows him. I believe. Now, wouldn't, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've gone through times of doubt. Have you ever gone through times of doubt? Okay, don't look around. Yes. Okay, look, look at me. Yes. I am so glad they weren't writing the Bible about my life. Poor Thomas. He had a moment of shaking, and it gets written in the book that's going to be the bestseller of all time. Doubting Thomas. But you know what? I have a feeling that most of you don't know the rest of Doubting Thomas's story. He was so transformed with the truth of who Jesus was. He began a life as a missionary. All of those disciples were dispersed out of Jerusalem. He made his way down into India. And he was preaching in India. And he so riled up the pagan priests down there in, in this area of India that they thrust a spear through his side and he gave his life for Jesus Christ. No longer doubting Thomas. Now we have martyr Thomas. And may that still be written of me. Amen? They need to to say the rest of the story. So doubting does not have to be your defining understanding of who you are. It's a place where you find yourself that's screaming inside of your head, learn more about this. And God will settle your doubts. Amen? So we've been talking a lot, oh, oh, where am I, oh, there, there. Um, We've been talking a lot about Genesis, so if you would open your Bibles up to Genesis, we're going to have a good time. 
Open your Bibles up. Genesis, it's page one, or should be somewhere in there. Amen? What page is it? One. Is it really? All right. Not in the fancy Bibles. Actually, it is one. It's one in mine. Let me find my place in all of my notes here. Okay. So we read through, uh, we got through the uh, Genesis 1, and we got the world created. How's that? And uh, remember I told you that the word God in all of Genesis 1 is Elohim, 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 there's a in there, however it is, however it works. Elohim, it's a singular word that also has plural meaning behind it. So God is one God. But there's a multitude of majesty in his one name. There's a multitude of glory. There is a plural plurality of glory, one name, one God. And it has this very shadowy, weird um, understanding behind it of plurality. And we're going to get into that a little bit here tonight. But that also foreshadows the Trinity, so that's kind of cool. But Elohim. And then we find here in Genesis 2 where um, he's finishing things up. And throughout the whole chapter of Genesis 2, and hopefully we're going to get through this chapter. I'm going to go as fast as I possibly can and get you out here early. How does that sound? Are you a doubter? Zach is looking at me like it ain't going to (laughs) happen. Okay, well, I'm going to make a believer out of you here tonight. Amen? Okay, so we have Genesis 1, and then we have Genesis 2. We're getting through Genesis 2. Um, I am going to probably take a little bit extra time here between Genesis 1 and 2. And as you've noticed, it's taken me a couple of weeks to even get to this point. My poor dear husband. Whenever you want to call this series quits, just let me know because I will. But Genesis 1 and 2 are my most favorite sections of the whole, ch- of the whole book. Because these are what you would call the Edenic, Edenic time period. You've heard of the ja- Jurassic time period and all those, you know, crustacean or whatever they are, all those lots of time periods. Well, this is the Edenic uh, time period. If you'll notice, Genesis 3 verse 1 starts off with, and the serpent, who is the most craftiest of all animals. So we don't like, Genesis 3 1 is where things start falling apart. Amen? Starts, and life from that point on gets a little sketchy. So Genesis 1 and 2, though, this is a period of time where we are in the midst of Eden. And we do not know how long Genesis 1 and 2 actually takes. But I sure wish I could live during that time. I want to give you a good feeling of what Eden was like. Because Eden, that time frame, is what God is wanting to bring us back into in, in, a, in certain aspects. And what heaven will be like in certain aspects, okay? So uh, I've been doing a lot of reading and a lot of research. And uh, so what I'm going to be using to expand the word of God, the Bible, is a lot of um, scientific research that they've found, a lot of archaeological diggings, and a lot of what theologians think, okay? So I'm going to throw some things out at you tonight. and, And they're not necessarily all Bible, so you can pick or choose, Okay, Bible, you don't get to pick and choose. But I'm going to throw out some things. I'm going to probably stretch your little mind a little bit here tonight. Are you ready to get stretched? Okay. I'll let you know the stuff that you have to keep, and I'll also let you know some of the stuff that that is thought, okay? So this is the Edenic time period. It really starts in Genesis 1, verse 28. So I'm going to start right there. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. First of all, I want to tell you. Okay, so I'm going to take chunk by chunk, and I'm going to tell you what, what was in Eden. And there's this thing called law of first mes- mention. So whenever God starts talking about things in its first form, that's its original intent. And God, that is, that is, that is a very, very important thing to him. Okay? So first mention here. First mention. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So I'm here to tell you that babies are God's invention. God loves babies. He loves that. He wants you to be fruitful in a lot of different ways, and it can be taken out of all sorts of you know, different connotation. But I am here to say that God loves babies. He loves infants and children and the idea of fulfilling the earth and multiplying. Satan hates them. That's why he aborts them. So I'm just going to tell you right now, straight off the bat, flat, yes, no, there is a war right now over the next generation throughout the ages. He hates babies. He hates babies. Satan hates babies. God loves babies. Because babies are new life. New life that can carry him forward. New life that can, that can yell and scream and worship for him, right? That's what the yelling and screaming is about, Judith. You had no idea. <laughs> She's got three little guys herself over there. But God loves babies, all right? Be fruitful. That means to grow, bear fruit, and bring forth. It means to multiply. He says to multiply. So he, he says to become more. You are, a, you are operating in the, in the original intent of God when you are uh, multiplying and becoming more. When you are multiplying yourself. I watch Carla every week back in the preschool, and I'll tell you what, she's multiplying herself in those children, and she's becoming more. You are a people of increase. You are not a people of decrease. God says to go out there, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish. That does not tell me I am a failure. We're all going to lose and we're all dying. If you have that mindset, you are not in the same mindset of God. And this world today makes everyone feel like everything's going to hell in a handbasket and is no good. That is a lie from the pit and the devil wants you there. But I will say to you that God's thought, oh, it just went away. God's thought for you is to be fruitful, to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on this earth. You are a conqueror. That is him. That is him. And that is how he set this thing up. Anything less than that is not God. Are you with me? Are you? Do you believe me? Okay, well, it's true. So anything less than that is not God's original intent. Okay, let's keep going here. The next one. This is going to get down and dirty and personal. Ready? Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath and of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was. Adam and Eve were vegetarian. And the lights are going nuts. Just turn them off. Adam and Eve were vegetarian. I'm messing with you right now, but I'm telling you the truth. That's what that word says. 
I give you every seed. Go to the next verse up there. Is it there? And every green plant for food there. And so it was. Nope. Sorry. I didn't know where you were at. Okay. Did you? So read it in your own Bible. I give you. Okay. Why is this? I have to tell you that at this moment in time, death has not entered in to creation yet. Death has not come in. And for meat to be eaten, it requires a death. And death had not touched um, both animals and man yet. Okay, I'm tweaking with you now, right? You're all looking at me like, what? Yes, this is very true. So in the very, very beginning, um, and I give to every beast of the, uh, of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth that which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And it was so. Or however you want to say it. <laughs> Get your words mixed up. Okay, so Adam and Eve and all of creation at this point were herbivores. All right? Got it? A lot of archaeological finds are dinosaurs of immense size with very, very small lower jaws. It blows them away. They're like, what? You know, you're used to seeing, you know, and all the death and all that. That's coming afterwards. But during this season of time, there was none of that. Very small jaws in those dinosaurs and, and that kind of thing. And, and so that's what that is. Um, huge di- Okay. Um, now, I'm not putting vegetarianism on you. Because, you know, the original intent, we're all supposed to be there. Now, some people will go there. I'm not putting that on you because later he gives us permission to eat meat once death comes in. Okay? But I am telling you that there's a lot of wisdom in eating green things. We always would tell our kids, if you don't eat your salad, your bottom's going to quit working. And they would look at us with these big eyes and start eating their salad, you know? (laughs) And we'd have kids over all the time, and here's your salad. I hate salad. Salad's gross. You know, there's something good to be said about eating healthy. The room is a little quiet, but we'll, okay. So you want me to move on? Okay, so number one, uh, first mentioned, God loves babies. He wants us to be victorious. Secondly, he wants us to eat healthy. Okay, everybody write that down. Eat healthy. You're all on my side, right? Okay, so then we hit um, chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Vast array. It means as large as a vast army. And this army of the universe is an army that's standing in line at attention, in straight file, rank and file. So he's saying that the universe is not just a mess out there. It has order, and it has beauty, and it's very, very, very vast. Very true. It's amazing um, when you read, I didn't bring that book, but when you read um, Case for a Creator, and the mathematicians, the really, really smart ones, like by the time you hit you know, the really high up multiple PhDs, they are, they're doing math that is so immense. And one of the things that they all say is that it's beautiful. I never knew that. I asked Sterling, what do you think? Math pretty or what? And he's like, I don't think so. (laughs) But there's order. There's order all the way through all of creation. That's amazing. Okay, so then verse 2. On the seventh day, God God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from his work. We spent all of my last sermon talking about rest and how important rest is. 
And that, that rest means to stop doing what is normal in your life. That weekly, every seven days, you need to stop the normal grind. You need to work very hard for six days and on that seventh day, stop. And God intended for that seventh day to be spent with him. All right? But, so I won't get, get my CD if you didn't get that one. And the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of, of creating that he had done. Okay, so let's move on now. Uh, so we have verse 4. And this is the account of the heavens and the earth as, when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on earth, and no plant of the field had yet strung, sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There was no man to work the ground, but street, streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface, surface of the ground. I want you to notice something. We all of a sudden have a new name for God. It's, not no, it's no longer God, G-O-D, capital G-O-D, which in the, in the Hebrew is Elohim. But now we have Lord God. Okay, so go back to uh, verse 4 there. See the Lord God? Now, why is it always capitalized? Do you have any idea? In some of your uh, translations, you have a capital L and then a lowercase capital O-R-D. Okay, it's very odd. You're going to see that now throughout the rest of the Bible. That word Lord there is Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay? It's a different meaning. Elohim speaks of God intervening and creating the universe and being involved in the universe. Yahweh is a whole different word. And sometimes that, so um, the, the, uh, the Hebrew uh, translation into the Greek of our Bibles, Yahweh comes through as, um, oh, no, the, the words that are written down in the original come through as Yahweh. When the Romans took it and translated it into Latin, it says Jehovah. So the word Jehovah and Yahweh are the same. They're just two different translations of the same word. So that word there, that word Lord, is either Jehovah or Yahweh. And that word connotates now not God involved in the universe, it's God involved in man. So now he's shifted gears. Now God now is, is being known as being involved in man. And now his story, the man's story starts. Okay? Kind of interesting. You're going to find also then now throughout the rest of Genesis, the word Yahweh or the word Jehovah is going to become hyphenated. So as stories happen, as God intervenes with man, how he intervenes with man now will be starting to hyphenate with his, with his name. So then you will start having Jehovah Jireh later in Genesis when Abram is asked to, to sacrifice his son and he goes ahead and he's, he's about to do it. God provides the lamb in the thicket. And Abraham, become, Abraham begins to worship him as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Now we're going to start finding that name Jehovah becoming very apparent through the lives of men where God intervenes what his character is like. You're going to find a little farther in Genesis that we're going to start this word Jehovah Rapha comes out. And that's when God is saying, I, none of these diseases will come upon you. I want you a separate people. I am a God who heals thee. 
Or when Hagar is running for her life from Abram and Sarah, from Sarai, really, because she was being so mean, and, and she has Abram's son, Ishmael, and she's about to die, and she lays him underneath a bush, and, and she goes away, and she doesn't want to hear his thirsty cries any longer, and she walks away, and she, she sits down ready to die, and Jehovah comes to her and calls himself Jehovah Rohi, I, the God who sees in all of your troubles. There's going to be many, many, many hyphenated names with that Jehovah or Yahweh, whichever one you want to use, as he begins to uncover his personality. But this is the first time we see that. So we find a little time here where Jehovah or Yahweh has made the earth in verse 4 and the heavens and no shrub of the field has appeared on the earth and no plant of the field has yet sprung up for the Lord has, God has not sent rain on the earth. There's no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. During Eden, there was no rain. I think you all knew that. There was a firmament that covered the earth. It was a totally different feel, a totally different setup than what we have right now. They call it a firmament. Job even speaks of a hard dome that was actually covering the earth at this time. Job lived during the book of Genesis. I don't know if you knew that. So there's this firmament. This firmament sets up up kind of a greenhouse effect. The world now is not as it was then. What was the world like? Uh, the climate was very, very different. All the continents were stuck together, as you've seen in, in, in science. So there's just this one mass of land. Water flowed underground and came up through seeps. And it was very high density of, of um, uh, humidity all the time. And because of this firmament, there was very little temperature change. It was always kept at the same, it was like walking into a greenhouse. The whole world was like that. There was no UV rays that penetrated in. So, and that is a very harmful thing that actually causes aging and death in us. That was not present in the Edenic world. Very steamy and very lush. How do we know these things? We're finding, uh, the scientists are finding, there's been a bunch of fossils that have been found, especially down in Colombia. And inside of these fossils of resin, there are these little air bubbles. And these air bubbles are thought to have been even as far back as this. They call it hundreds and thousands and thousands of millions of years ago, right? So they've taken those little air bubbles and they've tested them. And you know what they found inside of those air bubbles? The oxygen content back in this time was almost 50%. We walk around and I think it's 21%. 50%. The pressure of the air in those little bubbles is higher than what we're used to right now. So that they believe that the atmospheric pressure at this time was a higher place than ours. Now that is what we call hyperbaric. Have you ever heard of a hyperbaric unit? Okay, when people are sick and they have sores or infections or wounds, they'll put them in a hyperbaric unit where there's increased oxygen and increased pressure. Their bodies heal like that. That's how, that is the climate that Adam and Eve lived in. Very possibly. It doesn't say that in here, but a lot of scientists, a lot of science is bringing this out. Very cool stuff, okay? So this is, the, this is this really cool thing. Animals grew to enormous sizes. Now, whether God created them huge or they grew to that size, because you know reptiles never stop growing. If they didn't die, they would just keep growing. 
How long was the Edenic period of time? I don't know. We don't know. Very interesting. They have found fossils that just blow people's brains away. Uh, They found a dragonfly, a perfect, beautiful dragonfly fossil. Do you know how large that thing is? 50-inch wingspan. 50 inches. How could something like that fly? Scientists were blown away. Well, if you put it in a hyperbaric situation, the pressure, the atmospheric pressure would allow it to fly. It couldn't fly now because of its design, but you could if you increase the hyper. So I'm trying to paint a picture to you now of what Eden was like. Crazy. Um, Fossils, a centipede in Germany found at 8.5 feet long. A turtle skull found in Colombia, 10 feet high. They don't know what to do with this stuff. A dinosaur in Argentina, bones scattered out. If, that, if the femur bone is a true femur bone of this, of this dinosaur, when, the, when they made kind of um, uh, computer scales and models of this thing, it would be 131 feet tip to tail, 65 feet tall. This is huge. They have found cattails, not like the cattail, but, you know, cattail, bush, shrub. You know, I'm talking about all these animals, and now I'm going to cattail. 60 feet high fossils. This is what Eden was like. It was an amazing place. Amazing. I'm messing with you. Now, some of this, this is not all in the Bible. Some of this is scientific, some of it is archaeological. Okay? So this is what he's describing here. Let's pick it up now in verse 7. The Lord God, once again it's Jehovah now, or Yahweh, formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So now we're going to learn about Adam. Adam comes forth. The word Adam means red or ruddy, and the clay is red. So Adam's body is formed out of the clay, out of the dirt, out of the dust of the ground. But yet it says that he was breathed into his nostrils with the breath of life. So now we have an understanding that man is two parts. His body made from the ground and his spirit breathed in with the breath of God. Later on in the word, it takes that word um, spirit and it divides it into spirit and soul. So we believe very strongly that man is a three-part being. You're not just a two-part being. Not one animal had the breath of God breathed into it. Not one animal, only man. Animals were made for man, man, not man for the animal. You have the breath of God inside of you. And when, you, when he breathed into the nostrils of man, not only did he take his first breath, but I believe very strongly, and many theologians believe that that is the moment that the mind was placed into him. It's very interesting. The concept of your mind, you have a brain, but you also have a mind. There's a difference between your brain and your mind. Huge difference between it. Minds can think thoughts. Minds can dream. Minds can conceptualize. Minds can, oopsie, there we go. Minds can, um, Uh, you know, create and come up with all sorts of amazing things. Brains just kind of function. Your brain is kind of like the TV set that you have. 
But what comes through that TV set and shows through is a very godly thing. That is a God thing. That is your mind. Does that make sense? We always have to remember that. And a little bit farther on, we're going to need to know that. So Adam, let's talk about Adam. He's a two-part being at this point described. He's very, very strong. He must be very strong. Because God put, what did God call him to do? Skip over, I'm going to have you skip. Skip over to verse 19. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. So beasts of the field, birds of the air, all of that came from the ground, just like man. And he brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called, each of the liv- called them and uh, each of the living creatures, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. If that is true, if God called man and man's job was to name every beast, everything that lived, his mind had to be amazing. His brain capacity had to be incredible. Scientists look at our brains right now, and they look at us, and they say that we only use, some of them, they all have kind of different thought process, but we only use a fraction of our mind, and the rest of it is hauntingly empty, unused. Our minds have been darkened to what, from what it used to be, and from that original intent. Let me just give you a little bit of understanding of how many names he had to come up with. And not only did he have to come up with names, they had to be different names. It had to be different appellations. You you couldn't use the same sounds. You had to, he had a grasp on language like crazy. And then he had to remember them all. There are approximately 1.25 million identified species of animals. This includes 1.19 million invertebrates, among them 950,000 insects, 700,000 mollusks, 40,000 crustacean, and 132,000 of others. There are about 58,000 identified vertebrates, including 29,300 fish, 5,700 amphibians, 8,200 reptiles, 9,800 birds, and 5,400 mammals. I can't even remember my children's names. Importantly, the numbers of these do not account for species that have not yet been captured or described scientifically. Scientists estimate there are as many as 10 to 30 million unidentified uh, insect species, many of them living in rainforests, and up to 1 million mite species. Mites! A million different mites! It is clear that modern science is not aware of the species of all the of all the species on the planet. When Carl Limersk and his pupils set out to record the species, they all of them that they could in the mid 18th century, they found just over 15,000 species of animals. Today, estimates of the total number range from two to 30 million. In addition to all the animals, there are between 10 million to 1 billion species of bacteria. What's more, the number of species today is thought to represent only 1% of all the species that have ever lived since mass extinctions of the past have likely killed off 97% of the species. I think Adam was pretty smart. I think his brain was pretty well used and well equipped. 
This is Adam we're talking about. He was very spiritually tuned. He was able to talk to God face to face. This was not normal. Any other time when an angel, throughout the Bible, when an angel or some kind of spiritual messenger would come to man, do you know what they'd have to say first? Don't be afraid. Stop. You're going to be okay. You're going to live. It's just me. I just have a nice little something to tell you. But it never records that in the book of Genesis with Adam. No, they walked in the cool of the dark of the day. Adam spoke face to face with God. This is Eden. Face to face with God. He also had the ability and it was to communicate with animals. Now this you can you can believe me or not. But when the serpent came and they chatted, it was normal everyday occurrence. You're all looking at me like, what? I don't know, guys. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I see in the word. Okay? He had a perfect DNA. His body was perfect. Continuing to read here over in verse... um, Verse 20, so man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place of the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought him her to the man. And the man said, Now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man should leave his mother and his father and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. No shame. Eve, what was she like? Let's talk about her for a second. We've learned about man. This is an incredible book. I would love every single one of you to read it. Divine Romance. The first couple chapters, though, are absolutely astounding. Do you remember at the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis? God said, it is finished. I am done creating. But Eve isn't there yet. You remember in in, uh, the beginning of these two chapters, God declares that man is created in God's image. Elohim, one yet many. Adam did not have a counterpart. He did not have his helper. The word helper there is very poorly translated. We do not have a word that gives it its true meaning. If you were to write out the, the, um, the actual words, the Hebrew words, it's ezer, E-Z-E-R, and then the word konegdo, K-E-N-E-G-D-O. Ezer or Ezer or however you would pronounce that. That word there means absolute. It's used in the rest of the Bible about 24 times. When it is used, it is used in a moment of time where there is a man who is absolutely desperate for help. And it always refers to God. Desperate. He needs Ezer. Or he will die. It's a life and death situation. Ezer, Ezer, however you say it. 
Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help, Ezor, come from? My help comes from the Lord. This is a man crying out for help. So when God made, looked at Adam, he was in desperate need of help. But God had declared that it was finished. He was not to create anymore. So he found himself in a pickle, shall we say? Maybe not. I want to read a little bit out of this book. And the last thing I want to do is bore you. So I think I'm just going to read a little bit because it says it so poetically. This portion here starts out with God and Adam talking. And Adam is desperate for his counterpart. Every single animal has come by him. He has named every single one of them. And they have come with a male and a female. And he looks around and he has no counterpart. He has no other. But yet he was made in the image of God. And when we look at God, he is one God. He has no counterpart. Not yet, anyway. So they're talking about this whole issue. And, and uh, he's crying out to, the, to God saying, where is my counterpart? Where is my other? These words seem to end for the creator, some eternal, uh, for the creator, some eternal vigilance was waiting. You, my very image, are willing to fall into this sing- uh, like this singular seed into the earth that you might thereby end your journey of solitude. You are willing to do it because he had been talking to him about a seed. Okay, and a seed dies before it can bring something forth. You are willing to do this to gain life from your life? You could fall to the earth and cease to exist in order to become as a seed um, many? You are willing to do this to have a counterpart? The man turned to his face to God and exa- exclaimed in a voice of inequivocal certainty, I am, I am. If you read Ephesians, he says man is to love his wife like Christ loved the, er- the church and gave his life up for her. He died every day for his wife. Men, your job is to die for your wife every day. The Lord lifted first his eyes and then his hand toward the heavenly realm. The celestial response was immediate. The heavenly host bolted forth into realms visible. A wild, joyous, and expectant throng they were, encircling their creator and his highest creation, man. Soon the two were surrounded with angelic light and praise. In the midst of his celestial demonstration, the Lord raised his hand again and roared forth a most thunderous and uninhibited declaration. For man, for man I shall now build a counterpart, kind after his kind. The praise vanished. Stunned, the angelic host stood silent. These were words they did not understand. What God had suggested they knew full well was quite impossible. For this is the eighth day, is it not? Inquired the angels. Indeed, it is the eighth day, not the sixth. And the Lord declared creation and all creating to, be, to have come to an end on the sixth day. Did he not? Can a male bear a child? Came an angelic whisper as yet another probed his innermost being for revelation. How can the image of God be two when God is one? This was the unanswered, unspoken question burning in the spirits of all the angels. The Lord turned his face turned to face the red-tinted creature standing before him, that he might answer for them these unanswerable questions. You are of the earth. From this very soil I brought you forth, but not from this soil shall I bring your counterpart. The Lord paused. Every angel leaned forward. No, not from the soil, but from, but from here. 
Every eye, human and angelic, followed the finger of God. A muffled gasp arose from each and all. The Lord's finger was now quite clearly pointing at the man's side. Your counterpart is, even now, hidden in you, declared the Lord. Counterparts shall not be only for you, but of you and by you, of your life, of your substance. Counterpart will be your being. She shall be you extended, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, being of your being, essence of your essence. Oh, exclaimed the angels quietly as he tilted uh, slightly to whisper to another. Then it is not creation after all, but it's a building. But what of God's oneness was a still curious angel. How should I know, said a befuddled reply. We have been here only since the foundation of the ages and the beginning of time and eternity, not before. The whisper faded. The Lord was staring at man. Slowly he raised his hand and passed over his face. Again the angel gasped. The man slipped to the ground and lay very still indeed. Has the inward portion ceased to exist? I believe not. He still glows. But how can anything be so still? Let us trust, even in this strange sight, that all things in God's creation are still good. Now, if one thrusts his hand into water, he shall surely bring forth water. And perchance, if one thrusts his hand into the earth, he shall surely bring forth earth. Then it follows that should the living God thrust his hand into the side of man, he would surely bring forth humanity. And this very thing he did, drawing forth from within a man a portion of that man, A part of the man's own being was now separated from man. Yet that portion was still man. Angels stood dumbstruck, watching man cease to be be one and yet remain one. You see, the Lord said softly, there is something, someone, hidden in Adam. The Lord brought forth from man's side a bone, a soft glowing bone, and held it for all to see. The man was no longer one, he is divided, yet both parts are still that man. Never could I have conceived such a crazy thing that it could be. Truly, there are many wonders to be found in the ways of man. The Lord now turned to face the angelic hosts. From this bone, taken from the inward part of man, I shall build his mate. He, the Lord's voice trembled, every angel tensed, a few instinctively reaching for their swords, man, shall now have one beside him, one of his very substance, his being, his extension, I shall now build flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Thus shall he gain a counterpart, a counterpart who, who is oneness, a counterpart on, upon whom he may pour out his love. As one, the angels bowed their faces to the earth. Some very small revelation of the unfolding drama had made its way into their spirits. They stood again and began to sing softly as creator now became builder. Soon the singing gave way to silence, for the scene before them enthralled their whole being. You have to read this book. It is incredible. So God did not create Eve from the dust of the earth like every other being. Woman was created when God thrust his hand into the side of man and within Adam was woman. He drew that out and built woman. Woman was in, Adam's counterpart was within him. God remains one. He has no counterpart that we can see and know, except for those of us who have the revelation of the Bible that speaks of the bride, the bride of Christ, hidden in him, 
And as God thrust his hand into Jesus and he pulls out the bride, you and I, we are to be made like he is. We are hidden in him. We are to come out and become God's counterpart. That's you. It's deep. I remember, you know, this week I've just been thinking about this and thinking about this and thinking about this. We are God's counterpart, the church, the bride of Christ. Woman, woman, woe man. You know, they talk about, whoa, man. Is that what he said when he saw her? Or, or the other, some other books said um, that man's woe came from her. You know, whoa, man, shoot. All of his woes, troubles. I know, I don't believe any of that. The way they got the name woe man is man with a womb. Because the female counterpart to man brings forth life. And I will say to you tonight, every single one of you here, the bride of Christ, is in place to bring life forth. You are to bring forth life, to nurture life, to fulfill the earth, to fill the earth, multiply, multiply the kingdom, multiply those that believe in him. You are to spend your life out there finding people who need to know him, sharing the word and the gospel, breathing life into dead humanity. You are to go out there and just you know, shine your light, bring people to Christ and then nurture them. You are the bride of Christ. Amen? Are you learning something? We skipped a whole section, but it's 7.30, so we've got to be done. Eden. So in three weeks, or whenever we meet again, I want you to read... I want you to read over and over and over Genesis 1 and 2. Read it over and over. Women sitting in this room, I want you to know your identity. I want you to know who you are. Because in Genesis 3, there's a very strong curse spoken over you. Jesus Christ came to break that curse over you. And man sitting here, I am here to tell you, every one of you men, You are incredible. Yeah. You are absolutely incredible. Women, I like to say that when God thrust his hand in and and withdrew out woman, he brought out all the beauty that had once resided within him, and then he, he just brought that beauty out. And that's who you are. You are the final of God's creation, shall we say. You are the, it got more and more complex with every single creation day until he hit you. You are the most complex. It got more and more beautiful with every created moment. And you are the most beautiful of all creation. Satan comes to speak over you death. He comes to speak over you ugly. He comes to speak over you 
unneeded, unappreciated. And I'm here to say that those are a lie from the pit of hell. You are his most precious, precious end of creation. Amen? I want you to know your identity. God created man and woman. You bring forth life. Your words are to be life. You bring forth beauty. I want to silence every negative word out of every single one of you women right now. I want to shut it up. I want to silence discouragement out of you right now because that is so contrary to your identity. So contrary. And when you open your mouth and you speak death and you speak negativity and you see all of everything around you that is broken and wrong and you criticize and you complain, I am here to say that is the devil himself winning in your world. You are a free agent. You have the complete and utter ability to choose. And we're going to find in the next chapter what happens. But I will say to you, but your original intent, O woman of God, is beauty, is to be the answer to man's desperate cry for help. You are not his problem. You are his desperate answer. You are amazing. And I don't know why that car is honking right now. It's the devil himself. Somebody in this room has a car going off. We're going to close. Women, stand up. Sorry, guys. I'm going to speak to the girls. Hallelujah. Father, in Jesus' name, oh God, I just declare right now, your original intent in Jesus' name over every single woman in Jesus' name. Satan, I rebuke you off of them. God, I just declare right now that your might and your power resides in every single woman standing here. And Father, I thank you right now that every negative spirit, every negative lie is shut up in these women in Jesus' name, that they will no longer believe the lie, that they will no longer be burdened down with the the troubles and the frustrations and the negativity. But God, I pray right now that their, their voices, their words are created in Jesus' name and that they bring forth the answers, that they bring forth, Lord God, the Ezer Konegdo, Lord Jesus, the desperate answers, the desperate answers in Jesus' name. Oh, you have no idea who you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care what you have been through, but rise up and lead, rise up and be, rise up and bring forth life in Jesus' name. Now men stand if you would. Because for us, to be who we're supposed to be, you got to die. you got to live your life for something more than you. And God, I just declare right now that every man standing here, that you would rise up, oh Father God. And I just ask you right now to give these men the power to die to their flesh in Jesus' name. 
Lord God, that their flesh no longer reigns and rules in their lives. No longer will their flesh begin to identify them. But Father God, I say right now that your word, your word is the word that is sure in them in Jesus' name. And they are strong in their calling. And they are strong, Lord God. And that they are able to die every day in Jesus' name. We love you. We honor you. Thank you so much for this precious body. In Jesus' name, amen.